So he said he would have destroyed them had not Moses, his chosen, stood before him in the gap to turn away his wrathful indignation. Psalm 106, verse 23. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, in these past few months, since about Trinity Sunday, we've been following continually the story of Genesis and Exodus all the way through the Torah, nearly from the beginning of the Bible itself. In this story, we see that God created the world. He created human beings to share in His glory, in His life, and in His work, bringing the good order and beauty of paradise into the world, making us in His image and in His likeness. He gave us, our first parents that is, everything we needed in paradise in the garden and called us to that eternal glory if only they could just fast and learn to patiently trust in Him. But of course, it didn't end up that way. Our first parents succumbed to the devil's temptation to suspect and distrust God's goodwill for them. And so they sought to take a shortcut to glory, to godlikeness, by seizing the forbidden fruits for themselves on their own terms. They had joined the devil's rebellion. To protect us, then, from the danger of remaining in his holy and awesome presence while unrepentant, God cast Adam and Eve from the garden into this material world, now subject to death and vulnerable to sin and the devil's predations. Heaven and earth, which were united in perfect harmony in paradise, were now sundered violently apart. And humanity found themselves not carrying God's blessing into the world, but bearing the state of curse. Left to fend for themselves and survive by whatever means necessary, or so they thought, and so many of us still live. Pagans also saw that this distance between heaven and earth, this alienation between us and the heavens and between the realm of meaning and goodness, was the problem of our wretched existence. Pagans understood that too. They saw that there were many forces in the world that they could not control, whether it was when somebody lived or died, fertility, the crops coming on time, whatever it might have been. But they reasoned somebody had control over these things. So, if we could just bring these spiritual powers down to our level, trapping them in our idols, well, then we can control and manipulate them to do whatever our corrupt desires would like. It was, to say the least, a vote of no confidence in their pagan gods. Frankly, however, the pagan gods were untrustworthy. They were right about that. But they didn't know the true God anymore. Now, in this story, as, as heaven and earth grow more and more alienated throughout Genesis, God has chosen to himself his own nation. He has made a nation for himself out of Abraham. He has called them uh, to live for a time in Egypt where they find themselves in slavery. And now, despite all of everything that God has done for them in delivering them from slavery in Egypt, in providing for them in the desert, taking care of them and protecting them in their hour of need, 
his people, Israel, harden their hearts against him, and they escalate the rebellion against him more and more and more. They refuse to interpret his compassion and steadfast love as anything other than hostility and malice. Then, just as they agree to the covenant, to binding themselves to God as their king and accept his terms in the Ten Commandments as we saw a couple of weeks ago, Moses descends from the holy mountain to find them immediately breaking commandments number one and six. They were attempting to worship the Most High God like one would worship pagans, pagan gods. They made for him idols, calves of gold, and they exchanged their glory for the image of a calf that feeds on hay. How can a holy God dwell in the midst of a sinful people without destroying them? How can the gap between heaven and earth be filled? This is the primary question of the Scriptures, the question that it so eagerly seeks out, and what, of course, we believe was fulfilled only in Jesus Christ. And so our passage picks up with Moses telling the people, you have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps I can cover it over. Now, I can understand personally prayer to a pagan god. It kind of makes sense. The pagan gods needed to be informed of what was going on. They didn't necessarily know. They were needy and capricious, jealous spirits so they could be manipulated and bribed or flattered. It was all about getting what you wanted out of them. That makes sense. But prayer to the Most High God has always been a bit of a mystery to me. He created everything that is. And he is so full that he is in need of nothing. So there's nothing you can possibly give him that he doesn't already have. He already knows everything about us and about everybody else, so there's nothing we can inform him of. And he knows everything that will happen, so we cannot change his mind. As the Scripture says, God is not man that he should lie, or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? And yet we also hear, he would have destroyed them had not Moses his chosen stood before him in the breach to turn away his wrathful indignation. So, what does Moses hope to accomplish there by going up to the holy mountain? How do we make sense of this apparent tension and, of course, the many examples in Scripture of effective prayer. So, three points for today about the mystery of prayer. First, prayer stands in the gap. Second, prayer changes us. And third, prayer changes the world. So, first of all, prayer stands in the gap. What is Moses doing up there on the mountain? That's my question. Well, he's interceding. It's a Latin compound word meaning going between. He's going between a holy God and his sinful, rebellious people. In the words of the psalmist, he's standing in the gap. It's actually a metaphor about a wall, 
a brick wall. You can imagine a wall kind of like this one that is, uh, has brick to brick, stone to stone, and is lined in between with mortar. That which stands in the gap is mortar. Any gaps in a wall's mortar were places where the bricks or stones could easily be shifted or removed, and so were weaknesses in a city's defenses that would be found and exploited by a crafty enemy. As St. Peter says, Brethren, be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil prowleth about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. St. Ignatius of Loyola, a 16th century Jesuit saint, agrees, saying in his Rules of Spiritual Discernment, that the enemy of our souls is like a brigand chieftain ranging about the city of the soul, looking carefully for any weaknesses or defenses that he can exploit. He doesn't go straight on for our most well-defended points, for our strongest points of our nature. That would be foolishness, spiritual suicide for him. Rather, he finds the chinks in our armor. He finds the little gaps where he could easily squeeze his way through those besetting temptations. And we all know it. We've all had that experience of feeling like our defenses are a little bit down. And, of course, the next thing you know, there's the enemy attacking our weak point, suggesting to us that thing that we keep falling prey to and dragging us down. To stand in the gap, then, is about praying to shore up a person's spiritual defenses in order to help hold their wall up under onslaught, to plead God's mercy on a person in danger or in need. It's to act like mortar for a falling wall. But the metaphor is also an uncomfortable one. The one standing in the gap is the mortar in the metaphor, voluntarily allowing themselves to be crushed and pressed between the weight of bricks and stones and to face the pressure of the enemy's cannonballs and assaults. Standing in the gap means being willing to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, as St. Paul writes in his epistle to the Galatians. And so we see Moses saying to God in today's passage, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, Lord, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. What a bold prayer. Moses is willing to put himself in their place to stand in the gap. This is the love which St. Peter says covers a multitude of sins, acts as the defensive fortifications for others in their hour of need. Early Christians had a sense of not just the vertical aspect of intercession, but also the horizontal aspect of it as well. And this is sometimes a little more easy for me to understand how it works. It's a little less abstract. They believe that God intentionally made us with different gifts and weaknesses so that we might learn to rely both on him and on one another in the communion of saints. Saint Hermas, a second century apostolic saint and a disciple of Saint Paul, he speaks of the rich of this world being given their wealth by the Lord, and the poor as being given the gift of intercession. 
The rich of this world have been given the gift of wealth, and the poor the gift of intercession. When they confer these gifts on each other, he says, they are like an elm tree that is twined about by a fruit-bearing vine. The rich appear to bear no fruit because the cares of their possessions hinder their ability to pray fully. Yet they can support the poor, whose prayers adorn the strength of the wealthy with fruit. It's a beautiful image of the symbiosis of the body of Christ. But the elm and the vine often need an intercessor, somebody to act as a go-between to connect them or to network them together. Actually, Bishop Patrick Augustine we had here last week preaching to us is a great example of just that. Like Moses, he stands continually in the gap for his flock, even risking his health and well-being to spend months of the year with them there in the South Sudan, enduring the same conditions that they do. And what does he do? He networks. He comes back to us and he networks his friends here in Florida who are, at least by South Sudanese standards, fabulously wealthy, but live in complex and busy lives with relatively little time or focus for prayer. And he networks us with his friends in the South Sudan who are materially impoverished but brimming over with childlike faith and powerful prayer. When our abundance is joined with their lack and their abundance with our lack, something beautiful happens. It's the gift of intercession. And it's a gift not least of all for Bishop Patrick Augustine himself, who gets to see God working through him. Now, something important to notice about the metaphor is that the bishop didn't have to convince us to be good-willed towards our fellow Christians, especially our fellow Anglican Christians in another part of the world. He didn't have to change our minds about that, did he? Rather, he presented an opportunity for us to make tangible our desire for generosity to them. And intercessory prayer to God is more like that than we might imagine. We do not have to change God's mind, but we realize that we have a fabulously wealthy friend in heaven who already desires better things for us than we can ask or imagine, and for our needy friends who are in need of his grace. All we do is network the two. So, this brings us to our next point, that prayer changes us. Prayer is not about changing God. He doesn't need to be changed. Prayer is about changing us. Sometimes, however, I notice in myself a lingering attitude of of a bit of fear or distrust that perhaps God doesn't really love me all the way to the bottom. That perhaps if I asked for a loaf of bread, he would give me a scorpion. Or perhaps he would just wipe me out if I presumed to approach him, like the trembling masses at the foot of Mount Sinai. I think most of us have experienced this fear or suspicion of God at some point or another in their lives, even their Christian lives, especially with confronted with passages like these from the Old Testament, where we see God's wrathful indignation burning hot against his people. But we need to remember here that God's wrath is not aimed at us, but at the sin which threatens to deform and destroy his children whom he loves. God has no pleasure in the death of a sinner, but rather that he turn from his wickedness and live. He only appears as the adversary of who we are now because he is the advocate of the person he knows we could be in Christ. 
It's important to realize and to remember that. He might only appear as our adversary of who we are now because he's the advocate of who we could be in Christ. Now, there's a theme that seems to run through the lines here of Jesus' teachings about prayer. He teaches a lot about prayer in the Gospels. And this theme that he teaches most about is learning to trust in the Father's generosity and his overwhelming goodness. Christ knows that all of us have had imperfect father figures in our lives. Even the best father falls short of the father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. We have all had authority figures in our lives who have in some way subtly spoiled our image of who God, the Holy Father, is. But Jesus shows us in his life what the unchangeable will of the Father is for us. For as he says concerning himself, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. What you see Jesus doing in the Gospels to heal people, to bring salvation, to persistently win them over to his love, even to the point of dying for them on the cross, this too is the Father's love and will for us. So Jesus says, Fear not, little flock. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And you are of more value than many sparrows, but not one of them falls to the ground without the Father's notice. Not one hair of your head falls without his permission. And if you, being relatively evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your perfect heavenly Father know to give good gifts to those who ask him? St. Luke says, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The gift of gifts. He commands us to meditate on the lilies, whom God clothes so beautifully despite being so transient. And then to meditate on the birds, whom God feeds faithfully, even though they don't have loaded 401ks or bank accounts or nest eggs. And to remember that we are of far more value to him than the birds or the lilies. And in his parables, he asks us if even a morally bankrupt judge will give a persistent widow justice when she cries out to him, how much more will the just and merciful judge avenge those who cry out to him day and night? And if even a bad friend will eventually get up in the middle of the night and give to his friend who knocks on the door, how much more our true friend in heaven who loves us, who never sleeps, how much more will he give gifts to us when we ask for those, our friends, in need of his grace? On and on he goes. We do not need to pray like the pagans to repeat ourselves for fear he didn't hear in the first place. His ear is always inclined and opened to the prayers of his children. As St. Paul says, he who did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? We need to ponder on these things, my friends. For the Christian who deeply realizes these things, and what access she has been given to the Father through the blood of Jesus Christ, will be filled above all with an overwhelming sense of gratitude in the presence of God, and will be able to present her petitions and desires to him, not with anxiety, but with thanksgiving and praise, filled with the peace of God that passes all understanding, that defies all material circumstance. Author Frederica Matthews Green writes in her book, The Illumined Heart, that the problem is not God's willingness to have mercy 
or to show his steadfast love to us, but in our forgetting that we need it. We keep lapsing into ideas of self-sufficiency or get impressed with our own niceness, and so we lose our humility. Asking for mercy reminds us that we are still poor and needy and fall short of the glory of God. Those who do not ask do not receive because they don't know their own need. The 19th century Russian hermit and spiritual director, St. Theophan the Recluse, wrote that when we approach God in prayer, we need to cultivate a certain disposition. It is essential, he writes, to recognize ourselves as empty, an empty vessel containing nothing. To add to this the consciousness of our own powerlessness to fill this emptiness by any effort of our own, and to crown this by the certitude that the Lord alone can do it, and not only can, but wants to and knows how. The Father is able to fill us with all we need, with better gifts that we can ask or desire. He wants to. He knows how to do it. But he delights to have his children ask him to diligently learn how to please him and to seek his will in every circumstance and to humbly trust and wait upon his goodness, even in difficult times. So Jesus says, keep asking and you will receive. Keep seeking and you will find. Keep knocking and it shall be opened to you. If you face apparent silence, it is not God's rejection, but his invitation to come and seek his face even more deeply to repent of our sins and draw closer and to realize the only thing that any of us truly needs is God himself. The school of intercessory prayer is a severe training ground for holiness. This is what Moses discovers as he draws near to God to intercede for his people. And we see two things happening to him. He is, first of all, more and more filled with a burning desire to see God's glory to be perfectly united to his beloved. And second, we see him profoundly humbled as the light of God's glory and his searching love illuminates his own sinfulness and weakness and emptiness. The scripture even goes so far as to say that at the end of his life, Moses was more humble than any other person on the face of the earth. He's no longer the proud youth who stood as self-appointed judge of the world who killed the Egyptian on his own initiative. He's not even the grumpy old curmudgeon exasperated at Israel's stubbornness uh, most of the time. He does have some lapses like we all do. He has rather become a type of Christ, willing to lay down his life for the flock, like our great high priest and intercessor in heaven. So what is the biblical secret to powerful prayer? This humility, which, like Moses, pines after the intimate, personal knowledge of God, which is awed by his superabundant generosity and fatherly care, and which is willing to stand in solidarity with sinners, come what may. And our final point, prayer changes the world. So if prayer is about changing us and not God, why do we see so many apparent miracles in response to prayer through the Bible and through church history? And perhaps in our own lives, I've seen miraculous responses to prayer in my own life. 
Well, the reason lies in God's purpose for creating us in the first place. He did not make us as pieces of furniture to sit pretty in his house and passive. He made us to be royal sons and daughters by grace. He made us to bear and present his image to the world, to be transformed into his likeness by working together with him to spread his beauty and order and goodness into the world. The picture the scriptures paint for us of our life in the kingdom is not a passive one, but a thoroughly active one of responding to God's gracious initiative every step of the way. So mysteriously, wonderfully, God has chosen to use the prayers of his people as an instrument by which his kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. And of course, it's the Father's generosity that wills to share with us this noble work of prayer and intercession and that so richly rewards us for doing it. But if the reward is great, so too is the responsibility. For God has committed himself to working through the prayers of his people. In Ezekiel 22.30, some thousand years or so after the time of Moses, we see the Lord say, I looked for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so that I would not have to destroy it. But I found no one. At that time, there was no Moses, no faithful intercessor to stand in the gap for Judah, and the wall fell. I look at our nation, our churches, our homes, our leaders, I see them in that same trouble, that same danger now. And I pray that on the day of judgment, I don't hear God say to me, I looked for someone who would stand in the gap on their behalf, and where were you? May God draw us all into this graceful and beautiful work of interceding for the world on behalf of sinners like us. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or imagine, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinitybureau.org and follow us on Facebook.